Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The domestic season may be over, but we still have the Champions League and Europa League to come. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can create your own personalised bet. You can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and even more. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's match live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hay Show is an athletic podcast brought to you with the square ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. And back from his week off is Phil Hay. Hello. You have a nice time, Phil? I did, thank you. Yeah, very nice. Did you talk about football incessantly with your family? My family never talked to me incessantly about football, so it was genuinely one of those weeks um, where I could switch off, which was lovely, although I have to say that the weeks that went before it were fantastic as well. But no, football-free, um, a lot of Windsor Castle and London Zoo and other child-friendly events. High drama. And from the square ball, the man who is actually on his holidays at the minute, it's Michael Normanson. Hello, much the same for me. Zoo visits, beaches, that sort of stuff. Kids things. Sounds terrible. I've not left Bradford in about six months. I'm not allowed out. <laughs> What a season it's been, and Phil's been covering it all every step of the way. You can read the best bits of the season just gone and all the Premier League coverage that's due to come our way on The Athletic. And you can also read about the rest of the Premier League and sport from around the world. Get yourself a 30-day free trial with The Athletic right now by heading to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. If you're not yet a subscriber, the lovely thing is you can read and listen to everything ad-free. You get none of those frustrating clickbait articles, just great stories told properly. If you want a sample of that, Phil's promotion article on Marcelo Bielsa is free for the next week or so. You can enjoy that, then sign up with that 30-day free trial, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Well, there it is then. The curtain has been drawn on the 2019-20 season. It finished with the championship playoff final, which was last night at the time that we record this. That's out of the way. Leeds United won the league by 10 points and are joined in the Premier League by West Brom and Fulham, who beat Brentford uh, last night. Uh, Reflections on that playoff final then. Did you watch it? I did, and I thought it was a fair result. My head before the game said that, that Brentford would win, and, and my, my heart did as well. But the, the thing about Fulham is that they probably have, pound for pound, the, the best squad in the league. And I think I'm like a lot of people who've, who've never been convinced that, that Parker has ever quite got the, the best out of them this season. But I just thought from the off last night that they seemed more sure about their system and more sure about their tactics. They, they got a grip of the midfield early on, which against Brentford, and, and we saw this at Griffin Park when Leeds were down there in February, is is the only way to stifle um, service to, to the front three of Bueno, um, Ben Rama and Watkins. If, if you cut those three out of the game, which Leeds did really successfully um, back in February, then it becomes very difficult. And I think that, that trip down to Griffin Park is one of the few occasions where I can remember seeing Brentford having to go quite long ball towards Watkins and, and looking for his pace. And there was a bit of that last night. They, they didn't get a lot of the game. They didn't control a lot of a lot of the game without Fulham looking sensational they just seemed like they had a bit more confidence and a bit more organisation about them and and obviously it's a combination of a a great free kick from Joe Bryan and a a horrible mistake from from Ray at the back that's that's ultimately settled it but I I would have to say that over the season I think Brentford were the better team I don't think there's any argument about that but I thought on the night and and when it mattered you know when it came down to that one-off result I, I thought it deserved to be Fulham's evening. It was nice to watch a game and not care too much. I was the same as Phil. Having seen Brentford and Fulham both a fair bit this season, I'm fairly confident Brentford are actually the better team, but 
never happened for him last night, did it? There was just not the same sort of attacking zip that they had earlier in the season. And well, we've seen that maybe their their weakness over the last few games when essentially they've just needed to win well, one of three games would have seen him promoted and they've not been able to do it. So a little maybe a little lesson there for uh, for Thomas Frank in future to not not get quite so cocky. Do you think Brentford were guilty of talking too much in the build up to this and across the season? I think they were. Um, I I did a review of the season and as one of the sections of it um, last week, uh, it it was um, asked to to look at the the strangest quote. And and I look back at what Thomas Frank had said before Leeds went down to Griffin Park at a point where Leeds were badly out of form and, you know, off off the back of that game at Forest, which really seemed to have sucked a lot of the the optimism and confidence from them without labouring on it again. You know, the the night of that Luke Ayling interview, which did make you worry about how things were, you know, inside the four walls of of the dressing room. And it just seemed like a a strangely mistimed moment at at which to kind of try and pile on on the pressure and to shout the odds. I I think Leeds were probably under as much pressure as they could have been under anyway. And if you speak to people at Leeds, they will tell you that they all have taken notice of what Thomas Frank has said. Quite a lot of this can can pass players by. Quite a lot of this just gets lost in the ether. But they were all very aware of it that night because they were feeling it and, and they were under the cosh slightly. And in a lot of ways, what he said wasn't wrong. It was almost the worst possible game for Leeds or it felt like that in the build-up and Griffin Park is not a venue where Leeds have ever done well or have coped well with the size of the pitch or the the tightness of the ground but it just felt straight away like the sort of comment that was going to that was going to be replayed and and you know, sent back to you at ten o'clock of the night of the game if you'd either lost or or been outplayed as Brentford were. I know, I know, it finished in a one-all draw, but Leeds were comfortably the better side, and I think it was one of the few occasions where that front three of Brentford were, was completely lost. And he was at it again um, in the, the last week of the season. You know that all that stuff about now it's back to Leeds to to deliver as as we have, which Leeds ultimately did. And Marcondes um, was doing the same before the playoff final. And, and I think when you look at it with Brentford, they've had opportunities to go up. West Brom losing away at Huddersfield and, and then dropping points to the last game against QPR, that was the, the door opening for Brentford. You no, know, it was there for them to finish second. And, and again, last night against Fulham, that was the moment. That is when all the talk needs to turn into a performance that takes you up. And I, I saw somebody saying on Twitter earlier, and it's a really good point, this, that a club like Brentford can kind of play without pressure for a lot of a season, certainly at this stage, because they haven't been established in as a playoff side for years. I, mean, I know they, they got there under Warburton, but more often than not, they've, they've shown promise that hasn't quite been delivered on. But ultimately, when it came to the point where they where they had to serve it up and where they had to deliver, they weren't able to do it. And it was almost as if, particularly away at Stoke, that the pressure did did just get to them. And I think when you consider how much pressure Leeds play under right from the off and, and in every game, it, it makes the reality of a table in which Leeds have, have walked away with it and, and won it by 10 points incredibly impressive. I think with um, Frank and in the comments leading up to the playoff final, what they're guilty of doing is let their in, letting their internal dressing room chat, you know where they're obviously going to build one another up, letting that spill out into the public domain. Because you can understand behind closed doors that these players are going to want to build themselves up and each other up in order to try and get promoted, but to vocalise that and externalise it. And I would suggest as well that actually the media team at Brentford haven't helped by picking out some of these quotes and creating graphics for them and putting them on the official Brentford feed, such as quoting that bit of Thomas Frank saying that they were going to be in the Premier League, because these things can have such a habit of coming back to bite you. And Leeds fans, and at the square ball we've done it as well, have made hay with all these comments in the wake of them losing the playoff final. A lot of clubs can be guilty of that. I mean, they're not alone in that sense, but it did just seem misjudged. And and as I say, to think back to February, a point where Leeds were, 
you know, we're really up against it and we're struggling. Why say that? And and why risk that little added bit of motivation that, that wouldn't otherwise be there? Why not just leave, leave leads to, you know, to stew in their own problems and to dig themselves out of it without having the, the potential benefit of, of a manager like Frank shouting the odds? I just didn't understand the point in it. And it, it felt to me like the wrong comment at, at the wrong time. And, and I think that there has been quite a bit of that. And, and you're right, it, it always felt as if things that should have been said behind closed doors were being said in, in public and these things are always there to, to catch up with you further down the line. I, I don't think with hindsight anybody at Brentford will feel like they've, that in a PR sense they've necessarily handled the second half of the season brilliantly. They've played brilliantly at times and that run of seven and eight wins was, was exceptional and actually gave them a chance of second place which I didn't really think was there when the games restarted after COVID but ultimately they'll look at it and they'll think they've blown it and it never looks good if, if you're on the side of the fence where you're suggesting that other other people's bottles are going or, or other people are losing their nerve it, it never looks good if, if yours ultimately goes that way as well and I think more than anybody else this season they'll feel like they've they've let the biggest opportunity slip do you think this will mark the breaking up of that team as well now do you, th- do you expect all of the big players to leave this summer or do you think they'll try and hold on to some I don't know about all of them and they will try to hold on to as many as they can but I think it's going to be impossible to keep that team together as it stands. I mean, Ben Rama will have interest and I think Ben Rama will inevitably go. He's, he's, he's one of those players who falls into the category of being too good to, to spend another season in the Championship and he wasn't brilliant last night but I did think you know, he, he was hampered by the fact that Brentford's midfield was a fairly distant second behind Fulham's and they didn't have enough good possession to really let him do his thing. Watkins falls into the same category with, with loads of goals in the Championship. It goes without saying that, that he fits the bill of, of, of the, the kind of strategy that Premier League clubs or, or lower-end Premier League clubs have been taking more and more, which is to pick off the, the best of the Championship. Uh, so I think they'll be able to keep a reasonable core of it there for, for next season. I just think it's impossible for them to resist some of the offers that are going to come in and, and it might also be impossible to persuade some of the players who are there that actually this isn't the time to go. You know, are they going to be the same team next season? Are they going to be the same sort of threat? I, I think realistically they, they still could be but there's always that fear at the back of a player's mind that if you're at a high water point and this is a, you know a, a particularly high benchmark for some of them then then that's always the time to move. Will Leeds have a sniff at Ben Rama? They will, yeah, no, no question, or at least they'd, they'd like him a lot, and and they'd like to do it. I think, as is the case these days with with all the players at the top end of the championship, there is the question of who else will go in for him. Um, he's he's been pretty strongly linked to to Chelsea, and that becomes a very difficult battle to compete in, given that that Chelsea are now talking about Champions League football. But who's to say that that they actually will bid? That's what it will come down to, and it's a, a strange window this time round because COVID is changing the the financial power of clubs and is changing the way in which the window's going to operate. But Ben Rama certainly. I mean, I think Watkins fits the bill as well. You know, there's a lot about him that that I think would be good in a Bielsa team. But Ben Rama's the one. I think if they could get Ben Rama, they they would be delighted to do that, and and they would do it. But he's not. They are by no means going to be the only team that are in for him. Well, let's talk Leeds now then. Premier League club. Nice to say that. This is a Premier League podcast, I think now, isn't it? Just about. Absolutely. Replacing Norwich, Bournemouth and and Watford in the Premier League, us and uh, West Brom and Fulham. It's a pretty strong looking lineup for the Premier League next season, I would say. There's some some decent additions in there, not not least of all Leeds. I think so. And 
the one way in which I, I sympathise with Lee's and feel actually a little sorry for them is the fact that, that you know, after 16 years and after all the effort to, to get back there, they're hitting the Premier League at a point where the transfer window is not as it should be. They've they've got a limited amount of time, very limited amount of time to get business done before the season starts. And granted, the window runs on into the middle of October. But you know Bielsa, he, he will want players here quickly and he, and, and he'll want to have them um, ingrained into his training methods as, as rapidly as possible. And it doesn't make it easy. And, and it does mean that they're going to be under more pressure, I think, than than they would have been otherwise. On the flip side, this might actually be the perfect summer to be going up with a squad which is as, as settled as it is. I mean, we, we've touched on this many times, but he won't change the squad drastically. He's looking at four signings, five signings tops. That's literally all he wants for the, the first team. They, they will do a lot of under-23s business as well. But in terms of actual core signings for, for the first team and the first team squad, it, it will be limited. And, you know, that that's how he wants it to be. And it is probably very helpful for him that this doesn't have to be a, a summer of revolution. You know, there are a lot of players there who already understand him and, and know how he works and what he does. A lot of players who have already adapted and you won't need to learn anything new this summer. I don't see him revising much. I don't see him changing much. I don't see his tactics switching in, in any way whatsoever. And that might be to Leeds' advantage, really, because this isn't a summer where you want to redraw everything. There just isn't the time. We'll come on to transfers a little bit more with part two when we talk about Victor Orta in just a bit. But where do you expect those sort of four to five to be sprinkled across the squad then? Well, definitely up front. I mean, that that goes without saying. They, they are still in this um, kind of impasse with Jean Kevin Augustine, and the bottom line is that whether or not they were they were forced to sign him further down the line, whether or not they failed to get out of this obligation, even if they find themselves having to pay money for him, I, I see no conceivable situation in which he would play for Bielsa again, and, and in which he would be involved. That boat seems to have sailed in between his fitness and his inability to get up to speed after the lockdown, the nine games at the end of the season, it does appear that, that Bielsa has washed his hands of him and I don't think Augustine has any expectation or now desire to, to come back and play here. So that's a, that is obviously a problem in the background in the sense that Leipzig want the cash and, and this looks like it might well end up in court given that Leeds don't want to pay. But I'm told that it won't significantly affect the budget or, or affect the budget at all. I, I think they are clear on what they want to do at Leeds and, and that's irrespective of the fact that they might be hit with a bill for Augustine. But Absolutely, goals are needed. Um, some form of striker is is needed. Something to to complement Patrick Bamford and and to provide competition for Bamford, who who I think will play regularly next season. I think he will be involved, you know, in, in the same way as he has been um, in the past two years under under Bielsa. Uh, the the priority for them, though, without a doubt, is Ben White at the back, and and that is the really. That's the really complex deal because as it stands, Brighton are digging the heels in Brighton and insisting they don't want to sell. He's due to come back to training with them in the next week, which is when I think things will properly develop one way or the other. I think it will become far more apparent whether or not he is going to be in the picture down there and, and they are going to sit tight with him or whether or not they, they could be persuaded into into doing a deal. But he's going to be expensive. There's no question about that. I just think Leeds have, have seen so much in him over the past 12 months and have seen so much progress and development in him under Bielsa that they would happily pay a high price for him. Um, and I think they understand, like Bielsa does, that he is so integral to the way this team plays and, and it's almost so critical to keep him on board that they'll do everything that they, they can to make that 
that happen. They do have one advantage in the sense that he's on a very low contract at Brighton, Ben White, less than 10 grand a week from what I'm told, and I think around about half of that. And, and clearly he'll now be going into a dressing room with players who are on very substantial Premier League salaries and players who, who he would want to compete with, but would also want something, not necessarily parity, but something that, that more accurately reflects how good he's been at Leeds. And he hasn't taken the offers to him so far, from what I understand, I, I get the sense that actually he might be very interested in looking elsewhere and, and I suspect we'd, we'd see a lot of appeal in a move to Leeds. But ultimately, he is Brighton's player and, and for as long as he is Brighton's player, this is their scenario and, and, and their deal to dictate. How long's left on his, on his contract there? He's, he's got a deal till 2022. That was done when he first signed for Leeds. Um, Brighton extended the contract and, and sent him out. Uh, so he's protected in that sense, in, in as much as it, it is a, a couple of years until he would be a, a free agent. But at the same time, it goes without saying that having played this well up at Leeds, he can't sit on, on what would be the equivalent of an academy contract down at Brighton or a, a young professional contract. I think it, it's pretty obvious to everybody that he is worth an awful lot more than that. And... You know, the, the issue becomes really that when you start putting a, a high valuation on a player, they, they look for wages to, to match. And I always remember this with Snodgrass at Leeds. There were times when Leeds would tell him that he was a player worth £8 million, £10 million, whatever it was. And, you know, the irony of that being that, that ultimately he went to Norwich for around about three. But Snodgrass's argument used to be, well, if I'm a £10 million player, pay me the wages of a £10 million player, you know, reflect that in the contract that, that I'm getting. And I think it would be very difficult for Brighton to say to Ben White, look, we value you at £20 million, £25 million, £30 million, whatever it is, but you're sitting on a contract which is the equivalent of a, a young professional or perhaps slightly better than that down there. So I, I think they would certainly have to, to do right with his deal in order to keep him happy down there. I don't think that's in question at all. And the, and the thing that only Bright, White could tell us is, does he want to stay there? You know, does he see himself as a as a player with Brighton long term, given that he, he hadn't really had a look in before this season? Or actually, has he progressed so much under Bielsa that, that he could see the value of staying at Leeds or potentially moving to, to Liverpool or, or the other clubs that are keen? It's a complicated one, and I think Leeds know that, that it's complicated, and they certainly couldn't put any money on, on how this is going to shake down and, and what the, the ultimate outcome will be. But he, I think, is the key, key signing for them. They would love to get him in permanently. Um, and if they can, then they will. Very quiet at Leeds at the minute. And I say that caveated by the fact that uh, things will undoubtedly change as soon as I commit those words to the recording and save the file, that some news will break because that's just generally the way these things work. But the issues that fans are sort of uh, speaking about at the minute, obviously there's Bielsa's contract. We've got the Adidas kit launch, news of shirt sponsors, Obviously, transfers is the big one. Work on the stadium. Any sort of um, update you can bring us as to why it's being quiet, Phil, and anything that's moving in the background? Yeah, well, let's take them one by one. Um, to start with Bielsa's contract, it, there's certainly no downtime in terms of that. Um, it just goes back to what we always say about Bielsa, which is that contract negotiations with him are extremely complicated and, and usually take a while. You'll remember in, in the summer when Leeds first appointed him, they approached him in May and it was almost the end of June by the time they were actually able to get him to, to sign on the dotted line. And um, as you mentioned earlier, the, we've got a piece free to read um, at the moment on The Athletic, which is the, the big promotion read that we that we did and, and published on the day that Leeds went up the, the Friday night of the, the game between West Brom and, and Huddersfield. And, you know, it, it references in there the, the fact that they, they very nearly missed the deadline to apply for a work permit for him because he, he just wouldn't be rushed into signing the paperwork. At, at times he was kind of disinterested in the paperwork. He, he It wasn't that he, he didn't want to sign it. It's just that he didn't want to get bogged down in discussions about money. He didn't want to get bogged down in anything other than 
talking to the club and the senior management there about the squad, about plans that he had, about changes to the training ground, all those things. And that's where they are again, essentially. I mean, I, I've spoken to people on both sides of this, Bielsa's side and, and the club, and, and everybody seems extremely confident and optimistic that it will, will get done. Nobody seems to think that there is any major issue here or, or that it's a problem. But they would have told you, certainly from the club's end two or three weeks ago, that it was likely to take this long because these things are never straightforward with them and, and they're never simple. And it is all very, very detailed and he wants it all to be finalised and tied up and, and agreed before he signs and whereas you might have found at other clubs with other managers that this could have been done in a, a very very short period of time it's really the case with Bielsa and as I say it very rarely comes down to money either that doesn't tend to be much of a of a sticking point with him and so th- obviously th- that leads on to other things I, I think with transfers they would like to get going with transfers as, as quickly as they can but as I mentioned with White for example he is due back with Brighton shortly and you know Brighton at the moment are not budging in terms of discussing a transfer or discussing fees or valuations or anything but this could be dictated by what White himself wants to do. In the case of somebody like Ben Rama, it was kind of obvious that if Brentford went up it was going to become very difficult, um, if not impossible, to get the better players out of there. Now that they've lost in the playoff final, I think they're, they're kind of there for the taking in terms of the more valuable assets they have and Ben Rama will, will certainly be one of them. But there, there are other issues as well. I mean, I, I get asked a lot about the, the kit launch and clearly we've we've had the announcement from, from Leeds that Adidas are, are going to um, supply the kit for the next five years and that's not a surprise. We've kind of been talking on it talking about that on here for, for several months. But there are other things going on. So obviously they need to finalise what the shirt sponsor is going to be, what the secondary sponsor is going to be, sleeve sponsor, all all these things. And and I think it'll only be once that all gets finalised and agreed that they'll be, be able to finally produce um, the home kit, the away kit, the third kit, release them and, and start selling them. So it is coming and it won't take any longer than, than it needs to take because they would like to release it at the first available opportunity, really. But there's so much else going on in, in the background and you know, just to touch on sponsorship, you, you cannot underestimate the difference between sponsorship in the EFL and, and sponsorship in the, the Premier League. You, I, I think I, I remember speaking to Chilino about the original Macron deal that they did and, and the difference between that and, and Kappa. And he was saying that Kappa, who have obviously been the, the suppliers for, for the past um, four or five years, it was worth around about two and a half million pounds a year to, to the club. And in terms of shirt sponsorship, you're talking usually in the high hundreds of thousands, somewhere close to a million. Once you get into the Premier League, shirt sponsorship runs much closer to £10 million. Kit deals are far advanced on what you earn down in the EFL. So they need to get these right and and they need to make sure that that they get the best opportunities that are out there. And and as I say, the the kit will come. It's it's not a case of, of it not being in the pipeline. It's just that they have to be in a position to have it completely finished before they can release it. Are they still in the process of finalising these sponsors then, Phil? Because you kind of get the impression or, you know, from a fan's point of view looking out, you think that they've planned for the two contingencies and maybe have been speaking to different parties in the run-up to the end of the season, particularly because we've had the, such a squeeze on time this time. But that's not finalised then? I, I think it will be finalised in terms of who they want to go with. Um, but my understanding is that they're still working on the the kind of final points of it and the, the legalities of it. There's a lot of money involved now and, and that obviously makes things a bit more complex and a bit more serious. But it's not going to be an issue. It's just a case of getting it wrapped up. And, and obviously everything has been delayed by the fact that we've had the COVID interruption and, and the fact that the season has run on towards the end of July. And it was slightly different with Adidas because Kappa was ending and there was opportunity for another 
other kit manufacturer to, to step in. And, and the reality with Leeds is they sell a huge number of shirts every season, you know, far out with the numbers that, that several, many Premier League clubs are, are able to sell themselves. So they're attractive to kit manufacturers no matter what. I think when it comes to sponsorship and so on, there's no doubt at all that your exposure in the Premier League is totally different to your exposure in the EFL. And, and clearly sponsorship draws in money in a different way to to shirt sales and, and everything else. So it is all there and, and it is all being done. But like transfers and like Bales' contract and like so many other things, they're being hit with this in in a window which is incredibly short between the end of one season and, and the start of the next. So I, I get the impression that although it doesn't seem like there is much going on at Ellen Road at the moment, I think it is very busy there. Are we seeing any physical changes to the stadium? Because you've spoken before about uh, your fancy press room upgrades and um, there's going to be the floodlights put over the West Stand as well to bring up the uh, the light values to... 4K Ultra HD TV standards for the Premier League. That was the plan, um, and there are there are things that they they have to do um, for the Premier League. So the the press area, the media facilities are one. I believe they'll have to change the dugout. Um, although I'm I'm not clear on exactly what the plans are, but my understanding is that you have to have the sort of racing car style seats um, in the dugouts as opposed to the the actual dugouts that that Leeds do have. You know, sunken into the ground and the, the technical area in front, and and the floodlights as well. I haven't actually been down Taylor Road since the game against Charlton and the and the celebrations in the street afterwards. I, I haven't been there since so I, I can't say whether or not any of the work has, has started I'll, I'll need to, to check that out but that's all planned and, and all budgeted for him and again is, is being turned around in, in a very very tight period of time Quick word on Ryan Edmondson he's gone out to Aberdeen on loan probably the only real bit of business we've seen happen yet will we see more loans going out this season do you think now as we're uh, sort of trying to flex ourselves as a Premier League club Yeah I think I think we will um, he's, he's been quite resistant to it previously Bielsa because he's always felt that it's better for him to have the players close and to have them training with him um, than it is to go out for the sake of games elsewhere which is you know quite a different different mentality to your, your average English coach and, and when you look at the development of the kids and, and their ability to come on and, and play in you know, high pressure championship games you can see that actually it has been a benefit to them they they benefit as much from knowing what he does and how he works um, as the, the senior core who are in the team regularly but I don't think Edmondson will be the, the last to go on loan I, I could well see with the likes of Davis and Gotts and, and Stevens, um, McCalmont, Alpha McCalmont as well. Opportunities being found for them. Um, I think we'll also see a, a, a very steady influx of under twenty three signings this summer as well. They, they've been happy with their youth recruitment recently of Leeds. You know, it's it's worked with Davis. It's been good with Stevens. Struick has obviously looked like a. He's, he's been the find of the of the last nine games. Really, he's, he's come from nowhere really in terms of a first team presence to actually looking like a very very capable defensive midfielder and, and a very good stand-in for, for Calvin Phillips. And admittedly, we're about to jump up a level, but still, I think that's been a, a big bonus for them. Um, but um, people will know that they've got um, Charlie Allen, young striker coming in from Linfield. They are very, very close to doing a deal for Joe Gilhart, the striker from Wigan. My, my understanding with him is that medical's no issue, terms are no issue. I think they're quite happy to meet what the, the administrators over at Wigan want them to pay. It just is going to come down to a case of whether Gilhart himself is 100% set on um, on coming to Leeds. But yeah, I think I think there will be loans and I think there'll, there'll be loans which won't just focus on players who are surplus to requirements. Even if people like Gotts and Stevens and, and Davis aren't going to be heavily involved, they're, they're not being loaned out in the way that, say, Debock was or, or J-Roy Grot. They're, they're not being loaned because Bielsa doesn't see any part for them. It will simply be because at, at that precise period in time, there are too many other players in front of them. Do you see Carlos Corbrand coming in for any of them? A very good question, actually. And I, I wonder, because 
Coburn has been a, a big champion of them and you know I think since we recorded last that that deal has been done Coburn to, to Huddersfield is their new manager which is a really interesting appointment and not a huge surprise I mean I, I interviewed Coburn for the, the Yorkshire Union Post about two years ago and he's clearly an extremely ambitious guy and I think the slight difference with him to the others in Bielsa's backroom team is that he was already there when Bielsa came in he, he wasn't one of the, the kind of iron circle as they call it around Bielsa the, the coaches who go with him everywhere and, and anywhere depending on which job he takes I always sensed that if it wasn't going to be at Leeds, and there was that little bit of talk about whether there could be a succession plan between him and, and Bielsa, if it wasn't going to be at Leeds, that he would ultimately find a managerial job elsewhere. It's an interesting one for him at Huddersfield because they don't seem to be in a particularly good way and, and they don't look from the outside like they're in a in a great state at all. But from what I can gather, Leeds were aware of interest in him from Huddersfield a, a good few weeks before the Cowleys left. Um, so they, they clearly know a lot about him and they clearly know what the what they think they're they're doing with him. And there's no doubt at all that Coburn is, is well thought of as a as a coach. So yeah, it, it would seem like a potential destination for some of them. Um, and if not, I think there'll be an ample number of clubs in the lower leagues who will be happy to take some of these players based on how well they've they've coped in the championship. And and I guess the the further question beyond this is who now steps in to replace Coburn as that conduit between the, the twenty threes and and the first team squad. I, I kind of wonder if it might pass to somebody like Diego Flores, the analyst who, who translates for Bielsa at his press conferences and is always very, very much involved um, in the first team picture. You, you see him round and about, you see him on the touchline and, and in the dugout there, they're, while, they're, while they're playing before and, and after games. I, I wonder whether it might be him who gets the nod, but we'll see on that count. Victor Orta, a man who has, as the saying goes, had ups and downs across the last few years at Leeds, but you could argue that his position and his approach very much vindicated on the evidence of the last 12 months to two years. And you've caught up with him again recently, Phil. How is he? Well, I was pleased to see that he's still alive because I have to say in the last nine games or so, I was starting to worry for his sanity and um, his health. I think it was Angus Kinnear who was joking with us that Alter's behaviour in the director's box had basically been a disgrace um, throughout that entire period. But I think you have to say that you, you see in him the amount of skin that he has in this game, you know... He's been here for three years and, and he knows fine well that the first year was, from an outsider's perspective and aesthetically, was not great. You know, it didn't look good. They went through two coaches. They did a lot of recruitment, which didn't appear to work or certainly didn't work particularly quickly. And and he was well aware of the criticism that, that he was coming in for, not helped by the fact that when he'd gone from Middlesbrough the previous season... He'd gone under a bit of a cloud and there were a lot of questions about his influence at Middlesbrough, whether it had been positive, whether it had been negative, whether it had ultimately contributed to them getting relegated from the Premier League. But you get two years down the line and you sort of remember that Bielsa was his choice as head coach and and it, it really does go down as the most inspired stroke outlandish appointment that Leeds have made since since probably Wilkinson, I think. I've said that previously and I've opinion on it hasn't hasn't really changed and he is actually his director of football somebody with a massive amount of responsibility for holding things together um on the inside you know for managing the relationship with Bielsa which despite all to telling me you know that it's not a problem and it's not excessively demanding and he doesn't understand why people ask about that it it is difficult and and it can be can be complex I mean again in, in the piece that we're running for free about Bielsa it talks about how 
him and Orton Bielsa can fight like cat and dog. People hear them argue in a way which which honestly makes them wonder whether one of them is just going to resign there or then. But for some reason and, and somehow, they're able to smooth it over almost instantly and there's never any bad blood and it never lingers and somehow this relationship just works. And I think as well there are players at Leeds who, even if Orton didn't sign, he's been very forthright in, in tying down to long contracts. So you guys like Cooper and... Calvin Phillips and Luke Ayling and, and Berardi, others across the team that, that they have committed to and, and that they have kept and they have stood by in difficult periods and who ultimately have been excellent for Bielsa. And, and on top of that, signings that have worked like Harrison and Ben White in particular, who has just been, you know, as good a signing as Leeds have had, with probably the exception of Pablo Hernandez in, in years and years. And ultimately it's worked. And I think that's what it comes down to in football. That, the criticism ultimately stands or falls on the basis of what happens. And, you know, it didn't work in the first season. But but when I interviewed Otto this week, he said to me, what we did do in that first season, even if people didn't realise it was put proper foundations in the club, we turned it into a more professional club and a club with more potential and a club that was far better organised. And, and he said, you, you don't need to take my word for that because Bielsa said it himself. The fact that Bielsa came to the club at all and, and took the job proves that he trusted the infrastructure, he trusted the, the core of the squad and, and thought it was good enough. And when it comes to the question of has the strategy from Radrazani and Orta worked, ultimately it has, 100% it has. And he wasn't trying to declare himself vindicated this week at all. I, I don't think he likes the idea that he should be standing there saying, look, ultimately I've been proved right and my recruitment was great. I just think he's delighted that, that it's happened. And I have to say I'm, I'm pleased for him as well because there has been a lot of criticism over the past three years. I love the idea of the two of them squabbling. I don't. I mean, I don't want to deal too much in a stereotype or a cliche, but you wonder if that's just something in the Latin temperament that we're just never going to understand. Probably, although I don't think it's unusual at all for individuals, high-ranking individuals at clubs, to fight with each other or to to argue with each other. It's it's a really pressurised environment, and and things can get very tense. But this is now the longest that Bielsa has ever been at a club. He's going into his third season at Leeds. He's he's gone past a hundred games. He feels like he's embedded, and you know, we can never say how long it's going to last. And you can't really see Bielsa being a manager who sees out five to ten years. Although you you never say never, but. Ultimately, he's been very happy here. He has been happy. It has worked for him. Um, he's liked the environment, the way in which the club has operated in the main has made him content. Um, he's never felt as if the club have let him down on on many of the many key issues or, or on many of the signings that, that he's looking for. And, and he feels like he's been supported. And I think between that and between the enthusiasm and the passion of the city, which w- without any doubt has, has really touched Bielsa quite deeply, I think it's become home away from home for him. It's he said himself, and, and I would, would imply absolutely no criticism of him for this, he said himself afterwards, after promotion, that nothing is ever going to compare to what he did at Newell's. And I totally understand why not. And I think as Leeds fans, you would understand why not as well, because that's your club in the way that, that Newell's is, is his club. But I, I don't think anything else in his career would compare to this. I don't know whether he'll ever say that. I don't know if he genuinely feels like that, but I suspect he probably does. Just going back to the criticism of Orta, do you think it's been deserved, some of it? I think it's been undeserved when it's focused on him alone. I think he has made errors and there are clearly signings that, that haven't worked. And I guess as head of recruitment, you have to hold your, your hands up to that. And, and equally, we had the choice of Christensen as manager in the first season when Otter and Radrazani were here. We had Heckenbottom halfway through, which, which didn't work either. But people are always at pains to say to me, look, 
he's kind of dealing with the budget and the strategy which comes from above him. And Radrazani's idea in the first season was to to spend the money, but to spread it across a lot of signings. So a lot of first team signings, and you remember as well, a, a very big influx into the academy. And it, it was expensive and, and ultimately too many of them didn't work. You know, they, they didn't work and it left Leeds in a position where they were having to move them on and where they were bearing the bill for, for settling contracts and, and everything else. But equally, I think over time, you start to see whether or not something works properly. I think one season is a very short period in, in which to, to accurately judge somebody. And I don't doubt at all that bringing Bielsa in means that they can operate in a far more professional way. As, as I've said many times, there's just that totally different level of authority now in the dressing room and, and in Bielsa's office. You know, he's a manager with no challenges and, and no, no dissent around him. And I think in that environment... It does make it more straightforward, and despite the challenges and despite the, the need to keep him happy, I think you're working with a manager who you can trust and a manager who you know is highly likely to to do good things. So, yeah, I don't think the criticism was was necessarily entirely unfair, but I think it had to be seen in the context of a, a club that Otto wasn't running. You know, he was director of football and he did have a responsibility for a lot of things, but in no way were Leeds United his baby. It was Radrazani at the top, and it was very much run by committee. I've got a certain degree of sympathy for him, actually, for the misses. What about you, Michael? How do you, how do you view Victor Orthra from a fan's point of view? I mean, ultimately, he's been part of a successful Leeds United, which we've been trying for you know 16 years to achieve this, and we've mainly come nowhere near it. There's been a couple of seasons where it's looked like it might be a possibility. It certainly have never looked like winning a league by 10 points, and he's played a big part in that. I think some of the early transfers, you do. it's hard to look at J-Roy Grot and Wasim Boy and see them as anything other than expensive failures. But then when you're shopping in that kind of a market where we were that summer where I think there were Middlesbrough were spending 15 million quid on players in the championship. So having the odd gamble for a million here and there was always going to be have a, have a high failure rate, I think. And ultimately, he's, he's the one who got Bielsa. So it's almost a case of all else is forgiven because I think that is the, well, we hope the thing that transforms Leeds United for the next 20 years is is that, just getting that man in there who can take us out of the uh, of the championship. I'd be interested to know, Phil, if if his role and the, maybe the level of autonomy he has has changed when he's now got someone like Bielsa who largely rules the roost versus someone like Christensen who was who was new to it and was maybe more you know more, having to have more input from Alta. Is that? changed drastically in the time or is it still working in more or less the same way? I wouldn't say drastically. It's just the fact that Christensen in particular seemed quite happy to use the players that were served up for him. He didn't seem to to contest that a lot that was done in the transfer market and, and wasn't difficult at all in that sense. Bielsa isn't difficult in the sense of being unrealistic, but he, he is very specific about what he wants. And I think it has probably focused Alter's mind more to look for the specifics and, and to try and find exactly what it is that they need. So, you know, the examples being Dan James or being Ben White. But Bielsa wasn't going to take Ben White because somebody was saying to him, this guy's a decent centre-back. He, he took him because everything about him, all his strengths and all his, his attributes fitted into the, the way that he was going to play. And, you know, they, they tell me all the time at Leeds that they will suggest very good players to Bielsa and say to him, look, you know, we can do this deal. We could get this done. This player could come in. And Bielsa will just say, no. And that's the end of it because they either don't fit or it's one body too many or he doesn't think that they're needed. So, it, you know, it, it's not easy recruiting for him, but at the same time, he, he hasn't been ridiculous in what he's asked for or, or in terms of the money that he's wanting Leeds to spend. I mean, you're right about Otter picking Bielsa out. I don't think anybody else at Leeds, and in fact, I'm not sure anybody else in the championship would even have considered that as a 
as a possible appointment. I think you would have looked at the potential complications and assumed straight up that there would have been too many, that the hurdles would have been too big and that you would get yourself into a chase that was was going to fail because it was always bound to fail. And I do think he deserves a huge amount of credit for that, for, for kind of taking that risk and then, you know, helping to tempt Bielsa to, to take the gamble himself. But I think what really opened my eyes with Otter was when I went to interview him for the, the very first piece that I did for The Athletic. And I'd never spoken to him at length before. I'd never had the chance to to do a sit down. And, and I wanted to because I wanted to understand him better. And I wanted to try and figure out whether the criticism of, of him and the scepticism of him was, was fair, whether it's kind of based on on fact and he ran me through the databases that they have the scouting reports they have the the sheer amount of effort that goes into tracking players tracing players and you know following players for months and months in in the case of Ben White for literally 18 months you know a year and a half of of keeping tabs on him just in case at some point a manager at the club said yeah do you know what I will have I will have him you know we'll, we'll have a try and you start to understand properly how complicated it is how difficult it is and why it is that deals do go wrong, why it is that signings that should work don't. Actually, how little control a director of football has once a player comes in through the door and, and also how little control they have over a deal, for example, like the loan they were trying to do of, of Harvey Barnes from Leicester, where he's at the training ground, he's ready to sign, he tells Arthur he'll see him on Monday. And then on the Sunday afternoon, as Otter's driving home from Southend, he gets a call to say that Harvey Barnes is going to, to West Brom. And if you look at Barnes, he, he's an outstanding player, outstanding young player. He, he would have been excellent for Leeds. And that would, I think, have gone down as a very, very good signing. And I think little by little, you start to appreciate how much pressure is on these guys, how much pressure is on not just this window, but every window. You know, people look at this and say, this is a very important window for Leeds. But quite honestly, it was no more important than the last and it was no more important than the window last summer. They all put a huge amount of strain on everybody. And I think when you, you would get inside it and you start to look at it, it it's not to say that you, you should accept an endless run of mistakes. And I think, like everybody, there's got to be a certain performance level that you hit. But you do understand what a complex, difficult world it is. Onto this window... And a window that they're going to put in the same amount of effort, it's going to cause the same amount of strain. But a window that's very, very different because of COVID and the changing timescales and the fact that we're, we're back at it again in another five weeks or thereabouts. So so what's this one going to look like for him? Yeah, I think that was probably one of the most interesting parts of the chat with him, what I took away about the window. He's certainly of the opinion that it's a window like no other because of COVID, that that things have changed drastically. And, and he made the point, and, and I think he's right here, well, you know, while we are talking about transfers at Leeds being, you know, things being quiet and being scarce at, at the moment, that a lot of the deals that have been done so far feel as if, you know, the bigger deals, and I'm talking across Europe as opposed to, you know, in, in the Championship or in the Premier League, feel as if they've been set up for a while. So guy like Bellingham to, to Dortmund, that's been in the pipeline for ages and, and everybody kind of knew that was happening and sure enough, it's been pushed through. But the other deals are becoming more complicated and in Alter's view, that they're becoming more complicated because nobody can quite be sure of the budget for this season. Nobody can be sure how much money they're going to have because they're not really clear when it is that you're going to have supporters coming back into the stadiums, when you're going to have crowds and you're going to have conventional match day revenue again. And, you know, there, there is this feeling that perhaps clubs will be more inclined to sell because they need the money. But as he said, if you're an astute club, wouldn't you be less willing to sell at this point? Because further down the line, players might be worth far more money because the game reverts to normal and and the valuation increases. He was saying as well that the idea that 
there would be countless players available on loan that hasn't really been borne out yet and, and might be yet um, before the end of the window, but at this stage isn't really the, the state of play. And all in all, it, it is going to be complicated. But he did say that, that Leeds have a, a very clear plan for what they want to do. Very sure about the fact that they want to focus their attention domestically if they can. Happy to take players from the top end of the championship and, and confident that, that they can do that. And I thought one of the, I thought one of the most telling statements from him was when he said to me that in the Premier League and ideally with Bielsa, assuming the contract, talks work out. The one thing they can't do is betray themselves, um, as Arthur said, basically betray the principles and either water down Bielsa's ideas or his tactics or, or abandon what he's been doing for the last couple of years, you know, in, in the way that Fulham did when they went up. And I think I think that is going to be crucial. I think that's the one thing they have to do. They make sure that this is all part of a three-year flow rather than being the end of the line in the EFL and, and a completely new page in the Premier League. It is essentially all start, all part of the same project and all part of the same plan that was put in place when, when Bielsa came in, in in 2018. And I think they'll, they'll work very, very hard to make sure that nothing they do disrupts that or nothing nothing they do changes that drastically. What do you think uh, Victor Otter does for his downtime? I imagine he maybe does something nice and calm like skydiving or something like that. <laughs> skydiving or bungee jumping with Alioski. Yeah, <laughs> that would be about right. But he, I, I did mention a holiday to him because my perception of an awful lot of people at Leeds and Otter probably as much as anyone, Barbie Elson and his coaches, is that nobody there has had a break in ages. I mean, it, it feels like so long since the end of last season and bearing in mind as well that it was a late finish to last season because of the playoffs and very short period to turn around in the summer before they, they came back for pre-season. It, it hasn't been easy to draw breath and you know physically they had the time off during the, the COVID shutdown. But they were training still. Uh, it wasn't like they were really able to go away. It wasn't like they were able to go abroad and switch off. And you know, actually, we we ran the story last week saying that the players who've gone to Spain in the, the past couple of weeks because they've been given time off have been asked to return because clearly there's now an issue with quarantine in the UK and they need to make sure that the players are available for when training restarts next week. So it's not easy. And, and I think as uh, head of the recruitment department in the way that he is, you're almost constantly at the coal face. So I was saying to him, you know, will you get away at any point? What will you do? And he said, well, I, you know, I can't go until the, the window shuts in October. That's the first point at which I can think about taking a break. Um, but he said that when he does take a break, he's planning to go to a cottage in the Lake District because he wants to discover a bit more of the English countryside, a little bit like Bielsa, who's been spotted in Whitby and Scarborough and other places. So I don't think it's going to be anything particularly high profile for him or, or any big money moves abroad for a couple of weeks. I think it will be a cottage in the Lake where he can um, get away from it all and switch his phone off. If you like beer, you are going to love free beer. And as a valued listener to this podcast, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. And thanks to the lovely people at beer52.com, you can sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash fill, cover the postage of four ninety five. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener to the Phil Hay Show, you'll get two extra free beers, so 10 free beers in total. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beers from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. And no surprise then that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme in it. From around the world, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and loads more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. And as an independent UK company, Beer 52, dead passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time you can pause your subscription. The power is all in your hands. 
as well as the best, most interesting beer that money can buy. Your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, which explains the theme and the individual beers in your case. And you'll receive a beery snack thrown into your case as well, just to top it all off. And if you don't like the dark beers, you can choose the light plan. It's dead easy to switch. Just go to beer52.com forward slash fill to get your case free. And don't forget right now, listeners to the Phil Hay Show get two extra free beers. Part three is when we throw it open. We dive into a, a lesser spotted topic uh, now and again. And we're going to return to the polls, I think, for next week's show, aren't we? But Yasuki Iriguchi was one that loads of people wanted us to dive into. Let's talk about that because it's one of those strange moves, isn't it, that seemed primarily motivated by the prospect of selling shirts maybe in the Far East. I think that was a bit of a misconception with it, really. Um, he, he was a player who Leeds did genuinely right. And I I, I think you, you tend to find that the idea that a player coming into a club makes, a, makes that club a, a huge amount of money from shirt sales tends to be fairly misguided. The way that deals are structured and particularly with the, the biggest manufacturers tend to make sure that, that they benefit very heavily um, themselves from the income they get from, from actual sales. A lot of the money is agreed in, in payments up front and, and clause related. Um, but it does tie into the, the discussion we've just had about Alter because obviously Idiguchi was, was one of Alter's signings, one of Alter's picks. He was somebody who they scouted in Japan very much like the look of and like the look of enough to, to put up £500,000 to sign him, which isn't a huge fee at all by championship standards. But actually, in, in that season when he signed, it wasn't far off the sort of top whack that Leeds were spending. There, there were deals that ran to sort of three million, three and a half million with guys like Samu Saez. But in the main, they were they were being pretty conservative with, with what they were paying. And Iriguchi had a, came from good stock. You know, he had a good reputation. He was playing in Japan at, at Gamba Osaka. But the thing that stood out with him was the fact that he was a regular in the, the Japanese national team. And he'd been a key player in the qualifying campaign for the, um, the 2018 World Cup, which when he came to Leeds, he, he was fully expecting to be part of and, and to play in. And he'd been spotted by Leeds previous to the, the January window when he signed. Um, Radrazani had actually been in Japan and, and in Tokyo for, for the game against Australia, which sealed Japan's qualification and the deal was done over the next few months um, there were other clubs interested but Idiguchi seemed set on coming to Leeds Leeds seemed set on signing him it, it was all set up and, and put in place to go through as soon as the, the January window opened and he was one of those players who kind of created a lot of intrigue because you knew very little about him and, and you wanted to, to find out what he was all about but as we discovered pretty quickly he was out the door just as fast as he came in on loan to cultural Leonesa and, and from that point he became a player who none of us ever spoke to in the media none of us really saw with the exception of the odd pre-season appearance before he left and the very occasional spotting of him at the training ground and like a few players who've passed through Leeds he, he kind of goes without us learning or, or knowing any more about him than, than he did when he signed and, and I'm still not really any the wiser as to what anybody thought that the grand plan with that one was going to be. What sort of a midfielder was he? Or is he? Let's, let's not pretend he's, he's retired. He's still going, isn't he? He is. He's back at Gamba Osaka um, in Japan. And, and bizarrely enough, I was told that Leeds actually made a profit on him when they sold him back there, despite the fact he'd hardly been involved and he, he was he was coming off a, a really bad knee ligament injury as well. Um, they they appear to have, to have made money on that deal, which is which is astonishing. And it was kind of box to box, but he could play as as an attacking mid. He, he had goals in him. Um, he was he was quite creative. That sort of free flowing midfielder who you could have seen fitting in fairly well at, at Leeds. But again, in, in terms of appearances in the flesh, I only saw him once, which was in a preseason friendly at York, one of Bielsa's first games in charge, and it was a it was a night when Matthias Cleek 
played as well, played in that team. It was almost like the the B team. And, you know, we we touched previously on the fact that when Bielsa first came in, his squad was split into a group of players who he definitely wanted, a group of players who he really wasn't sure about, and then a group of players who absolutely had to leave. And and both Cleek and Idiguchi fell into this middling group that might get a chance, but but probably wouldn't. And whereas Cleek was able to force his way in and, you know, through circumstance was, was able to, to take his chance really impressively, Idiguchi never got a look in. And, and I don't think it was that Bielsa didn't rate him. I don't think it's that Bielsa didn't like him or had a problem with his attitude. I just don't think he, he felt he was quite good enough to, to challenge for the positions that were available and he was ultimately going to be one of those players who was surplus um, around the training ground which is just the last thing that, that Bielsa wants um, so you, you you got the sense pretty early on in Bielsa's first summer that, that he wouldn't be sticking around I always really felt for him in that you never got the sense that he'd settled in this country and that by all accounts he was struggling with the language barrier that must be a really difficult thing for somebody to come to the other side of the world the language was a big problem for him. He didn't speak English um, and he didn't speak any Spanish either, which meant that around the training ground, it was very difficult to converse at all. Bielsa and his coaching staff went as far to get Japanese analysts online to help Idiguchi with his analysis and, and with his performance data and, and everything else because it was very difficult for them to interact. And I think the biggest confusion about it was the decision to send him to cultural Leonese, which, as people will remember, was the club that for a very brief time leads through even even Bravo, the, the former board member, had this, this strange tie-up with, this strange connection, which kind of implied that cultural Leonese could be either a feeder club or could be somewhere that Leeds would use to send younger players or emerging players on loan, but actually didn't seem to be productive in any real sense. And, you know, Edigucci went out there and played five times, but only started once and hardly featured at all from February onwards. And I think a little like he had in England, found the culture and the food and, and everything else quite difficult to cope with and and I can well imagine in that period felt an awful long way from home in Japan you know I, I, I there must have been periods in that spell where, where he was wondering what he was doing and and what it was all leading to and I do feel sorry for him really and and more than anything I feel sorry for him because the biggest price that he paid for all of it was the fact that he he lost a, a place at the World Cup in 2018 which prior to him signing seemed to be cast iron is it right that he did his ligaments in twice as well, which is pretty horrific? Yeah, the the, the really bad one for him was at um, Groyther Firth, who he joined um, shortly after Bielsa was appointed. He went there on loan um, for a season and Leeds agreed a, an option for the German club to sign him permanently at the end of the season. And Germany over the years has been quite a good location for Japanese players. The players there are a lot who have thrived over there. You've had Okazaki, Kagawa, you've had um, Inui and Makoto Hisebi at Frankfurt as well. There are a lot of them who, who have done well. Um, so it seemed like a good move. And I think he settled in pretty quickly and, and was quite happy. Um, but within a few weeks of signing, he, he did his ligaments and that ruled him out for six months, which was the, the best part of the season. And, and in the end, Reuther Firth decided not to take up the option, although I think that was as much to do with finances as anything else. I think they looked at the the fee that had been agreed in advance and, and kind of doubted whether actually they, they should be paying that money. And in the end, it left Idiguchi out on a bit of a limb. He was still under contract at Leeds, but it was perfectly apparent that he wasn't going to play. And in the end, the, the best move for him um, and and the, the best option as he could see it was to go back to Gamba Osaka, where, where he's been ever since. And, and he has been able to force his, himself back into the, the Japan squad uh, and he has played a fair amount over there. But I think his European adventure is, is probably over unless something fairly dramatic happens in the next couple of years. In terms of that link-up with cultural Leonese, that was born of the Aspire Academy link-up, wasn't it, in, in Qatar, which seems to have been somewhat, uh, you know, with 
peddled back on that one a little bit now by the looks of it because uh, Bravo's no longer on the board at Leeds, is he? No, he's not. He he left a little while ago and, you know, both of those um, tie-ups, Aspire Academy and um, Costa Leonese, he was heavily involved in, in both of them. And, you know, I made no secret of the fact that I, I didn't really understand what was in those relationships for Leeds. I, I certainly understood what was potentially in it for Costa Leonese, being able to take players from Leeds. Um, I understood what was in it for the Aspire Academy in that, you know, being associated with Leeds gave, gave a profile in the UK to a setting um, and a kind of training base that people would otherwise have had no idea about. I mean, it, it seemed ludicrous to me, the idea that the Aspire Academy could teach Leeds anything about youth development or anything like that. I think in a medical sense, um, they, they've got very advanced facilities there. And I think when it comes to rehab and recovery from injury, that there's actually a lot that the Aspire Academy does well. But it, it all felt it all felt a bit like the Emperor's New Clothes. It, when you looked at it closely, it was very difficult to see what was actually there. And I don't think it is much of a coincidence that, you know, since the end of the 2017-18 season, when neither of those things seemed to work and neither of them seemed to be particularly positive, they've barely been spoken about at all. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there is now no link up with Cultural Leonese. It's certainly never talked about. And you don't see the Aspire Academy referenced in anything like the, the same regularity as it was before. And, you know, I'd go as far as to say, I can't remember the last time anybody at Leeds um, spoke to me about Aspire. Um, it just doesn't come up anymore. So, you know, it, it's been a change of culture in that sense. And I think, you know, on, on paper, potentially nice ideas, those. But I think in reality, when you when you consider the idea of somebody like Idiguchi going to Spain in the middle of the winter, having first come to Leeds from Japan, it, it all seems a bit convoluted and, and destined for failure. In light of what you were just saying there about the shift in approach from Orta, where it seemed to be quantity over quality previously, and they've gone the other way now, do you think there's a likelihood that we might pursue options like this again in future, or is that one kind of done and dusted now? Because yeah, bringing somebody over from Japan does always feel like that little bit more of a punt, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and I think there must be players there in Japan as well who would look at that and, and probably question a little bit more seriously whether it's the right move. I mean, you, you would struggle to see anybody at Gambo Osaka thinking that Legion United would be something they could turn down. But as I say, if you actually track Idiguchi's story, he went from being the player who scored in the game that, that took them to the World Cup to making the preliminary squad, but then failing to make the final cut. That's how it went for him. And and it, it did cost him heavily. His, his lack of games in the second half of the season was was held against him and there was no way around it for him. I, I think it depends on a few things. It depends on your, your manager or your head coach, first of all, because Bielsa has seen very clearly how domestic deals work for him and, and how not British players, because there are plenty of players who understand the British game who aren't from the UK, but how players who play domestically and understand the domestic leagues can be good for him. Your Jack Harrisons, your, your Ben Whites and, and so on. You know, they, it is what for him. And because of that, it's a strategy that he wants to pursue, which is why, you know, they're looking at the best of the championship and they're, they're trying to recruit again in this country. I, I don't think they would ever write off completely the idea of doing a deal like this again, because in many ways, your, your emerging markets and your more obscure markets is where some extreme value can be had you know it's the the markets where it probably pays to scout because people don't scout with the same prevalence as they do in, in your more established footballing nations but it feels to me a little bit like the days of the the sort of punts and the the, the big risks have, have kind of gone for now it's not to say that the transfers they do are going to work and it's not to say that that everything will be bang on the money 
But I don't think anybody at this stage sees much value in doing that sort of deal. I think if you've got £500,000 or, or thereabouts, perhaps invest it in a couple of under-23s who who you think can develop and who are kind of tailor-made um, for this style of football and, and for this country's football. Um, so I, I would never, never say never, but I think at the moment, if they were to be offered somebody from Japan... Um, in the, the same sort of circumstances. I think they would give it very, very serious thought before going down, down that route again. With a lot of the transfer links this summer, is it, is it lazy journalism that we're being linked back to Argentinian players or is that an area that we, have, we are still looking at with obviously the Bielsa link there? It's strange really because it's it's not lazy in as much as Leeds are scouting some of these players. Some of the players who are coming up, um, the names in Argentina, some of the players in Europe and, and so on, it, the, there have been inquiries for them and there have been people on Leeds' behalf who've, who've gone and taken a look or have gone and spoken about them. But I think it's part of the way that scouting works these days, which is that you cast your net wide and you you have a list on which you have your key targets and your key players. But underneath, and I found this when I went to speak to Arthur and saw his massive scouting database, you, you have a huge number of players that you keep an eye on and that you monitor. In order to monitor them properly, you need to know things about them and you need to know things about their contracts and their intentions and, and, and everything else. And that involves speaking to agents, it involves speaking to other clubs, and it does leave you open to the possibility that bits and pieces of news or, 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 you know, talk about those conversations are going to be linked and leaked um, to the media. And I think that is that is essentially what's going on at, at the moment. Some of the links, like, for example, Delph and Danny Rose, who were linked last week, just, just aren't true and not players that, that Leeds are considering going for. But a lot of the other names you're seeing will have gone across Leeds' radar. You know, they are people that they will have looked at and, and may have since disregarded, but there will be an element of truth to a lot of it. The, the reality is that they are not going to sign 70 players from Argentina. You know, it is going to be four or five and, and most of them are going to come from, from far closer to home. Um, so that's the strategy and that's how, how it should play out. But yeah, no, some some of these links do have something in it. Thanks for that, Phil. And what do you think the next week or thereabouts holds before we reconvene to do the podcast next week? What what holds in store for Leeds? I do expect to see Bielsa's contract signed and Sod's Law being what it is. You could almost see it happening in between us recording this and the, the podcast getting released. But I speak to people about that regularly and I just don't sense any any great problem with it. Beyond that, hard to say because as we touched on earlier with um, with Ben White, it, it isn't just Lee's prerogative to go and offer for him and, and sign him. Leeds want him, um, but Brighton seem very, very resistant. Uh, the only thing that sort of encouraged me this week was that we ran a, an interview, my colleague Andy Naylor um, interviewed Tony Bloom, the owner down at Brighton, who did say very clearly in, in that piece that they do have an abundance of centre-backs at, at Brighton and did seem to imply that they cannot hold on to, to everybody that they've got in that position. So who knows if, if something's going to open up there and, and who knows if there's going to be an, a proper avenue to exploit, but you can never predict when transfers are going to move, and you can never predict when they're they're going to develop properly. I think the first port of call is definitely Bielsa, and I'd be extremely surprised if if that doesn't get done. After that, as I say, they they really will try and prioritise Ben White, but they they are going to have to start get moving getting moving soon because we're we're into August, and it's not going to be far off four or five weeks now till um till the start of the season. And they're all going to look resplendent in their Adidas gear. We look forward to that, and you covering it all for us on the Athletic, Phil. You can catch up with Phil's stuff, including that. Free uh, Bielsa article. It's a great read. It's uh, open for the best part of a week on The Athletic. So if you want to try it, give that a whirl. And there is a 30-day free trial as well if you head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show. 